Hello, everyone, and thank you for listening in with us today on our podcast, For the Sake of the Child. Our podcasts are brought to you by the Military Child Education Coalition, whose work is focused on ensuring quality educational opportunities for all military-connected children affected by mobility, family separation, deployments, and transition. Here at the MSEC, we want to ensure that every military child is college, workforce, and life ready. In our podcast, we will share your stories as we talk to military service members, professionals, parents, and military kids. Please like, share, and subscribe. And we appreciate your comments, questions, and ideas for topics that you would like to hear more about. So we want to thank HEV for making today's podcast possible. HEV makes it a priority to get involved and make a difference in the lives of friends and neighbors. HEB Operation Appreciation is a company-wide campaign created to honor the brave men and women of the U.S. Armed Forces, men and women who are HEB partners and customers, friends, and family. Operation Appreciation partners with organizations like us, the Military Child Education Coalition that supports U.S. troops and their families. In contributing time, talent, and financial support, HEB recognizes and appreciates the dedication and sacrifices service members make on behalf of the nation. So for our listeners in Texas, check out one of your neighborhood HEB grocery stores. And HEB, thank you for sponsoring this podcast for the sake of the child. Welcome everyone to our podcast for the sake of the child. My name is Susan Sellers. I'm a spouse of an active duty service member, parent to three military kids, master parent-to-parent educator, and now a podcast host at the Military Child Education Coalition. Today, we're going to talk to veteran Tom Wiggins about his experiences as a veteran. Tom, thank you so much for joining us today. Can you tell us a little bit about your time at First Ranger Battalion when you joined the military in 2001? Sure, Susan. Thanks for having me today. Um, I joined the Army as a result of 9-11. I refer to myself as a 9-11 Ranger. Uh, Like many people, I was pretty shocked by the actions of 9-11. I had never really considered joining the military before, but after those events, I felt called to join. And at that point, I really knew nothing about Rangers or any of that. But a, a friend of mine did, and he just said, if we want to get over there quick and fast, you need to be a ranger. So that's kind of the route I went and lucked out and made it through airborne training and ranger training and got to battalion pretty quick after 9-11. So. so tell us a little bit of life in 1st Ranger Battalion, maybe like some of the jobs that you had um, or positions and share a little bit about some of the deployments that you experienced. <laughs> sure. So. I was not a grunt. I was actually a nuclear biological chemical specialist, which sounds like a smart guy job, but I didn't necessarily take that job because I was a smart guy. I took it because I thought I wanted to be a cool guy. Uh, And the only thing I knew about the Rangers at that point was that Nicolas Cage played a Ranger in Con Air, and he played an NBC guy in The Rock. (laughs) so i said okay i'll do that that was the only way to get ranger my contract was to take the nbc job so i did and i made it through and then i showed up to first ranger battalion in early 2002 and it was immediately assigned to the headquarters company hhc and i spent about my first six or seven months in hhc before i was moved over to alpha company and that is where i spent the remainder of my enlistment while in alpha company what were some of your responsibilities? So primarily, I was assigned to keep to keep track, issue, uh, maintain nuclear, biological, and chemical equipment, which 
was actually, when you look back and think about it, I mean, it was millions of dollars worth of equipment that was entrusted to <laughs> a private, which seems kind of crazy to some people. But um, on top of that, immediately, I found out that when you get to Ranger Battalion, it's kind of like everybody's a ranger first so although i was not a grunt i found myself at the the range probably more than most other chemical guys and uh on deployments i was always with the guys i was uh, a top gunner on on the vehicles because i'm, I'm a large guy i'm six five so i could not fit inside of the vehicles so they would put me on top of them kind of an imposing force so kind of two birds with one stone fit them on the vehicle and scare the crap out of the locals <laughs> Well, I'm sure you were quite the presence uh, atop of the Humvee. So you mentioned deployments uh, during your time with 1st Ranger Battalion. I'm curious, how many times did you deploy? Um, yeah, so I did five combat deployments. I did four deployments to Afghanistan and one to Iraq during the initial invasion. Tom, this is Tara, the producer. Thank you so much for joining us today. I, I had a question on your fifth deployment. I had read in your profile, life dramatically changed for you. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Sure. So um, we were on a night movement. We had just broken down a block and position on the Pakistan border, and we were moving our location, and we were ambushed in the dark of night. And the very first shot that rang out actually hit me in the back, and that first shot was an RPG, which is a rocket-propelled grenade. So, big boom. Uh, basically took out our vehicle immediately, and I don't remember if we were the lead vehicle, but we were probably somewhere close to the front being the commander's vehicle. Um, so, I caught that RPG and a couple of small arms rounds in the back. Um, the, the blast left me unconscious, and I was in a coma for a couple of months, and then uh, I sustained, obviously sustained a skull fracture, and... The biggest thing from that is it left me deaf, but it also destroyed my vestibular system, which meant I had to learn how to walk and run and swim and all that stuff kind of again. Not sure how well I learned how to run again, but... Uh, <laughs> um, and I also had some other uh, issues, so the rounds that came through actually penetrated my lungs, so I had a hole in my lungs and then left a lot of scar tissue on my back and in the back of my head. So most of that at this point is superficial, but, you know, when I talk to some of the Vietnam guys... They say it doesn't hurt now, but it will hurt one day. So I'm not looking forward to that, but I kind of expect it at this point. Well, I'm sure with those injuries that you sustained, you know, from the skull fracture to the shrapnel wounds to um, the lung damage, and I mean, you lost your hearing. I mean, you were medically discharged and forced to explore, you know, a new future. Well, that, that is a interesting story. So while I was at Walter Reed Army Medical Center, I was introduced to the founder and CEO of a company called Evergreen Aviation, and I kind of made friends with him and built a relationship with him over the course of about six months. I attended some events with him and checked out his DC office and things like that, and he invited me to come out and work for Evergreen, and he called it his Learn and Earn program. So basically, I would work for Evergreen while going through, through college, and he would support me in that, and Really, more than supporting my education, more important than supporting my education, I feel like he provided me with a ton of international executive experiences. So uh, I did that for about five years, and I had a lot of adventures and loved it a lot. And then in 2009, I applied for the, something called the Army Wounded Warrior Education Initiative, and that was out of Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. And what that was the, is the Army brought in wounded warriors and paid for us to go to the University of Kansas and get our master's degree. And 
upon completion of that, actually before I completed, I started started teaching at the Command and General Staff College here at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. And then I wound up staying longer than I expected. I stayed, went ahead and stayed at KU for a doctorate and an organization called the Sentinels of Freedom funded that completely, tuition, books, everything. And I, I completed my doctorate actually in 2016, and I'm still here at Fort Leavenworth at the Army Management Staff College teaching strategic leadership. So that was kind of my journey. Well, I have to say that's quite a journey and a lot of wonderful opportunities. I'm so happy to hear you know veterans such as yourself were offered. And I know that you shared that you had returned to school during your time with Evergreen. Can you share, though, how your hearing loss affected your ability to learn? Yeah, well, that, that might sound kind of funny to some, but uh, I, I truly believe that my hearing loss provided a platform that empowered me to learn. Um, you may have heard there are two types of ranger. There's a strong ranger and a smart ranger. And believe it or not, back in the day, back in my Army days, I was a strong ranger. So I'm not kidding when I admit to you that I could barely read when I was in the Army. But once I curbed my disability, that's when I found the opportunity to overcome my reading handicap. So I was deaf now, so basically what that meant was my days of just chilling out on the couch, watching TVs and movies were kind of over. If I wanted entertainment, uh, I basically, I had to learn how to read. And so my, my first step to learning how to read was through closed captions. And it may sound kind of ridiculous now, but back then it was really hard. I, could, I couldn't keep up with the captions. I couldn't understand them. And just after watching for a few minutes, I'd really find myself worn out. But, you know, there isn't much else you can do when you're hospitalized for a year and a half. So, uh, so closed captions taught me how to read. And then immediately after retiring from the Army, I started college. And uh, for the first time in my life, I really kind of realized I was actually understanding what I was reading. And I was understanding that the, the assignments that I was being given by my professors. And actually, pretty soon after that, I found that I was uh, reading books for pleasure or leisure time, reading books on top of my schoolwork. And then next thing I knew, I read my way all the way through a PhD, and now I've even written a book. So I, I'd say that my hearing loss empowered my ability to learn. Well, I think that's an incredible story to share with others, and definitely just a testament to how determined you've been. Because I know, you know, it's it's definitely tough. You had shared with me that taking classes, you would have to get classes transcribed for you so that you could follow it. Just so our listeners understand, to, in order to do this podcast, we're actually utilizing a webcam and Tom is reading my lips. So I'm just so amazed at how far you've actually come. So, But I'd like to switch gears and talk a little bit about um, your kids. So in addition to redefining how you learned, you also had to adapt your parenting style with Madeline and Gunner. Can you share with our listeners how you maintain a connection with them despite these communication challenges? Uh, yes, ma'am. So to be honest, I was pretty concerned about how I would maintain communication with my kids when they, now they live 2,000 miles away. So obviously I can't use a regular phone. So the best option appears to be Skype or FaceTime or a platform such as that. Um, they're getting older now, so they'll text. They'll text a little more as I as I text them throughout the day. But you know, I've also learned to use to use and leverage other platforms to build my relationships with them. That they don't like Facebook like some of us old timers, but they like to Snapchat and TikTok. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I look pretty ridiculous on TikTok, but the kids love it, making those short videos, and we have some good laughs together. 
so Skype Skype is primarily how we communicate um, when we actually talk and have conversations. So that that is difficult even without the hearing loss, I think. So I, I realize I know that they miss me as much as I miss them and they want to chat and talk with me. But I also know they want to they have a life up there and they want to be out playing and having a good time with their friends. So after a while, you kind of start running out of things to talk about, and they get distracted easily. So, um, yeah, I, can't, I came up with a couple of techniques that help me uh, maintain communication with them. For example, um, each one of them, Madeline and Gunnar, they each read to me for 15 minutes a week. And that, that's not something that I enforce, but it's definitely something that I encourage. I don't, I don't want it to seem like a punishment, but I want them to know that it's important to me. I enjoy hearing them read. I enjoy seeing them do things like that. So one other really neat thing that I've done with Madeline is uh, over the past year, we've been writing a book together. So yeah, we, we brainstorm ideas on Skype and then I write it up during the week and I'll, I'll read it to her and then she'll tell me what she thinks. So she'll offer feedback and, and then we kind of repeat that process every week or every couple weeks. And it sounds kind of crazy, but it's worked great for us. The book is already over 350 pages long, and it's getting pretty near completion. I actually told Gunnar the other day when we were talking about it, he said he wanted to write a book, and I said, I can't wait to see what book you have in you, buddy. <laughs> I have to say, Tom, I love those ideas. I might actually have to borrow them for one of our workshops with Parent to Parent, and I think it's just a testimony to how much you value education, not only for your kids, but for yourself. I mean, as you mentioned You've earned a master's through the Army Wounded Warrior Education Initiative, and then on to a doctorate degree. What motivated you to keep pursuing your education? Well, you know, uh, so that was partially because opportunities kept presenting themselves to me, and uh, partially because I wanted wanted to complete my formal education before my kids got too busy with theirs. So, yeah, you know, I want to be as involved as I can in their life and learning as much as possible, but that was the plan anyways, but we know that not all plans survive the line of departure, so... As a lifelong learner myself, I'm constantly looking for new and innovative ways to learn, things to learn, and I don't see that stopping anytime soon. Some of my colleagues like to joke that I'm addicted to learning. I want my kids to share that belief that learning is fun and powerful. So I'm kind of in this. Uh, so the public school says that my daughter has issues focusing at school, and I don't really think she does. I think she just needs to learn discipline. So the conversation that I've been having with her is that the Army, in the Army, I learned discipline, and I kind of show her how well it served me. And then I told her that if we can find what discipline works for her, I have no doubt that she'll be even more successful than I am. So, Well, and I think that advice is great for adults as well as kids looking for the discipline that helps to motivate you. And I certainly can see why you're such a great role model for your kids. And your discipline and hard work have paid off. In fact, it's paid off recently in a book uh, that you've written called Disabled Leadership. What would the biggest takeaway be from your book that you'd want our listeners to know? Well, first of all, it's important to understand that disabled, disabled leadership is not only for disabled people. Disabled leadership is a lesson from disabled people. And it's that our disability is not what defines us. It's not failure that defeats us. And it's not weakness that inhibits our accomplishments. Disabled leadership is simply building a leadership from a platform of resilience in order to empower yourself and others. 
You know, so in my time teaching and leading, I found that disabled leaders tend to demonstrate leadership traits better than the rest of us. So by capturing and developing these qualities in the book, I think we can all demonstrate and emulate leadership. Well, I definitely think that's a truly a powerful point to consider. Any advice that you'd like to give our civilian community about veterans specifically? Well, so it's for me, it's important that to remember that veterans are civilians too, right? So uh, it's kind of two part, I guess. I, I believe that veterans have unlimited potential, and I'm not really, I'm not speaking specifically, but veterans have this foundation of audacity that seems to elude most civilians, and I think it serves veterans very well. So what I'm saying, so being a ranger or any type of veteran, that's an important accomplishment. But I always say, don't let it be your only accomplishment. Uh, my mentor used to always tell me that the military will make you a man, then it's up to you to decide what to do with it. So your service to yourself, your community, and your nation, uh, it doesn't end when you separate. So I, 10 years from now, when I see you at a reunion, I want to hear about all the great things that you've accomplished since the military, or even better, because of the military. And then... We'll tell lies about the good old days. <laughs> and then for the other side, you know, there are 1% of the nation is served. So for those who haven't served, hey, I've, I'm always impressed and inspired by our country's understanding and support of their soldiers. Uh, soldiers, they we've been tasked with a near impossible maintaining stability in a world that doesn't want to be policed. So it wears even the toughest rangers down. The best thing that our, our countrymen and women can do and continue to do is to support us and know that we appreciate it. I couldn't agree with you more. I think just knowing that our country appreciates the sacrifices that our active duty and our veterans uh, are making and have made really helps. So, Tom, what makes our podcast special are the stories our guests are willing to share. Do you have any final story or even advice that you'd like to share with our listeners? Yes. You know, I was just thinking, and I hate to beat the horse, but uh, I was thinking of one other thing I would like to say. So, you know, a lot of people ask me what the most important thing I learned during school was. And I always tell them the same thing that I tell my kids. The most important thing that I learned in school wasn't math facts or dates or policies. The most important thing I learned in school was how to learn. Once you figure out how you learn, the rest becomes easy. And I guarantee success becomes imminent. And I just want to truly thank you um, for candidly sharing your journey with us. And in my opinion, you are an American hero. And I am just so honored to have the chance to chat with you today. I want to wish you the best of luck on the book and in the future. And if our listeners are interested in more information about Tom's book, we'll include the link in the show's notes. Thanks to all our listeners for joining us today. I want to thank you again for listening to our podcast for the sake of the child. We would like to invite you to visit our website at www.militarychild.org. Like the MSEC on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Please join us again next time as we share more stories that impact our military-connected kids.